Hello and welcome to Fear at the Top with the Bragg Media CEO and co-founder Luke Gerges and myself, Poppy Reed. This is the podcast where we aim to go deep and wide with heads of companies in the music industry and find out how they got to where they are. Today's guest, Ben Tillman, is a bit of a polymath. He's the founder and promoter of Festivals Yours and Owls and Farmer and the Owl. He runs a label under Farmer and the Owl, which has released music from the likes of Hockey Dad, Bad Dreams, Beck Sandridge, Totally Unicorn, and many more. And he also runs a talent buying company for venues and festivals, all out of Wollongong, which is where we are now. What I love about our guest today is that he has made such an impressive contribution to our music industry from both an art point of view and a political lobbyist point of view too. Ben Tillman is well known in the industry, but not because he's shouting from the rooftop about everything that he does. He's more of a quiet achiever in my mind. He's an authority on the live sector and has been called upon all throughout his career when the industry has been in crisis. Also, by the way, Yours and Owls Festival pulled off the first major music festival held in New South Wales since the beginning of the pandemic. And he's also known for building one of the most recognisable names in music with his schoolmates. And he started it all in a coffee shop. Welcome, Ben Tillman. Hey, how are you going? So we're going to get to your formative years in a minute, but there's one thing that I would love to touch on with you. And it's something that not everyone knows about you, and that is how you went from not using a wheelchair to using a wheelchair pretty much full time due to quadriplegia to now sometimes forgetting that you even use a wheelchair because you don't need it all of the time. Um, can you share that story with us and for our listeners as well? Uh, um, all right, straight into that off the bat. Uh, <laughs> we get real here. Yeah. Um, yeah, how it happened. Uh, I, it was during a Yours and Owls birthday um, party actually, so back in the day when we had the coffee shop we would throw just, you know, parties, um, the birthday was the celebration and that is what has kind of grown into the festival now. Um, after one of those I was, made the stupid decision to, um, we caught a cab all the way pretty much to back home. Then I left my car at someone's house and I was like, I need my car tomorrow. I'll just drive my car literally the next suburb. Such a stupid decision. Um, but I did it and, you know, drove and then clipped the telegraph on the way, telegraph pole on the way home and yeah, broke my neck, um, C4 to C T1, I think. So it's just a bunch of the like cervical um, vertebra. Um, I was in hospital for five months, I think. Um, and then, yeah, since then, I have had to use a wheelchair. Um, but yeah, that's probably the other side of my life. That's kind of the other focus of, um, you know, just, I get that just sort of snapped me out of probably some bad habits that you kind of pick up along the way, especially in the music industry, drinking and, you know, just that kind of lifestyle, which, um, you know, in a lot of aspects, it's been a pretty positive kind of experience and just taking me on a journey that is pretty different. And I probably would have never, oh, I don't know. I like, hopefully I would have found, you know, the things that I found now in time, but that was just to kind of, okay, now you need to start that side of things and you know just looking after your health and doing all the kind of like mental work on all right fixing whatever you know 
mental demons or whatever there were mm. to lead you to, you know, living a kind of destructive life, I suppose, drinking too much. Um, so, yeah, it sort of forced me to snap out of that and do all that work, which, you know, just a lot of self-help kind of meditation kind of stuff, um, just paying super close attention to my health, stop drinking, no drugs, um, which, you know, that has obvious benefits with just mental clarity and, you know, I'm so much sharper and um, that whole side's been really beneficial. But just the, the work that you kind of do on yourself with, I've always been a pretty self-reflective person, I think. Um, but it just allows you to see it through a clearer, probably more positive lens and rather than leaning into or being identified by, I don't know, life experience or past trauma or whatever, you kind of, you move past that and kind of focus on, I don't know, where you want to be and just more positive sort of, um, I don't know, outcomes mm. sort of thing. Um, so yeah, part of that journey, like I said, it's made me focus on a lot of the mental work, but then I've also just the physical stuff, you know, actually related to the injury. Um, that's been a whole other, um, journey so I've seen an acupuncturist three times a week since the accident um and you know I've progressively just I couldn't really use my hands at first when at first when I was in hospital you know I couldn't hold a glass um couldn't really write with a pen so now I can walk in a frame and it's slowly getting there um acupuncturist has really helped or you know just I, I exercise quite a lot every day that's obviously helped um i think all the mental sort of training side of things has really helped and then i just i got back from panama uh like three weeks ago um where they've it's all i wouldn't say it's like experimental or anything it's pretty um established now but i went and got the like stem cell treatment which oh, cool. it's insane i've got so much energy like or it generally it's supposed to, it's supposed to take like three to six months for it to sort of start working but um i've got so much energy and like i'm already starting to see stuff there so yeah that's the other kind of life journey i suppose that's amazing yeah yeah that's really incredible and also it's something that you like i mentioned in the intro it's something that you just don't shout from the rooftops about along with a lot of your other successes as well and i wanted to ask you about that because Disability activism is a very powerful thing. And, you know, my understanding is that when, from a public perception point of view, some disability activists are given the burden of having to educate the general public um, about how not to intrinsically tie themselves to their disability. Um, you know, yours and ours, as an example, Tell is fully... Again, sorry. What so do you mean by that? I think that a lot of disability activists have to educate the public on how to make sure that we as public don't directly tie them to their disability yeah, yeah, so yeah. that we see them as, you know, yeah. fully rounded human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that's Which quite a, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that it's a real burden on them to have to educate the general public about that in some ways. I think it is just a personality thing, right? Mm. It's, I don't I think the burden might be if they're feeling pushed aside or unheard or misunderstood, that's probably the burden mm. in terms of, and again, I'm, speaking out of school I'm not I wouldn't consider myself an activist 
at all. Um, but I think that's a choice that those people make, right? Like that's just their personality and they want to push for change and, you know, whatever it is that their cause is. Mm-hmm. I think that that's generally a choice that they make. And sure, you wear the burden from the choice that you make. But initially, I don't think it's the burden that leads them to be the activist. Oh, God, no. Yeah, yeah. No. I think it's... No. It's it goes like the other a... way. I think they kind of get them... They, they, they see that there's change and that's probably an idyllic, mm. maybe naive kind of thing of, all right, I'm going to jump in. I think we can change this thing. Um, and then as you get into that, you kind of realise, oh, okay, this is actually kind of heavy. And then the, res- you, the responsibility comes once you've kind of established that that is what you are or what you're known for. Mm, yeah. Maybe, I don't know, but yeah. I'm just kind of guessing. <laughs> I mean, you don't see yourself as a disability activist, um, like you mentioned before, but, you know, yours and ours is fully wheelchair accessible, but you don't publicise that fact or you don't use it to um, kind of tap into um, diversity conversations in media or anything like that. And, you know, my understanding is that you don't see yourself as a, a poster person for disability activism in any way. And I just wondered why that was or if that's a conscious decision for you uh i don't i guess we're pretty young in the industry and we're kind of just doing we're just learning on the fly to be totally honest and i don't think we're an authority to necessarily speak about anything other than our own experience which i'm more than happy to do Mm um i don't yeah, look, I, I don't, we can, we can definitely improve on all the areas, but we're just doing what we identify as needing to be done. And that is often a thing that is limited by your means at the time. It's limited by your experience. And each year you just learn, oh, okay, you know, this is a new thing that we'll need to introduce because this was an issue last year or whatever. And we are so far from the end of like perfecting that. So there's mm. so many new, I don't know, just lessons to be learned, which will be then brought into how the festival side or, or whatever it is, you know, any aspect of what we're doing kind of operates. Um, so I don't know. I think it's like if we're asked to talk about a thing, I'm more than happy to share our experience. Mm. But I think by kind of going out and saying, we're so great, we're doing this and we're doing that, we're doing that, you're kind of pretending that you're an authority on something, which we're definitely not. Like it's such a it's such a learning process for everybody, I think. We're doing our best within our means and um, I don't know, I think that's all you can do really. So yeah, I just don't feel comfortable going and screaming it from the rooftops of, you know, it's a bit showy and I don't necessarily think it's, I don't know, maybe it's tokenistic and it's a bit inauthentic um, coming from us anyway. Like, I know that we're not we're not the best at it. So, you know, leave that to the people who are the best. It just seems like it. it's not your style either. Just not the way you Yeah, like I don't things. really like... Um, yeah, for sure. Like, mm. I don't... I've never posted on Instagram, so... Well, I, my account has no photos. <laughs> but you have an Instagram... Oh, I have an Instagram account, but there's no photos on there. So that probably <laughs> is a good symbol for how I live my life. Yeah, yeah. Just check out your yep. Instagram. Um, well, can you take us back to the beginning? So when you founded Yours and Ours, the coffee shop days, 
How did that all come together? How did you come to found yours and ours, the business? Um, so there's three of us, mm-hmm. Adam, Bell, and myself. Um, and oh, wait, can you go back to your relationships with Adam? And So I've known Adam since, I, since we were born, pretty much. Um, and then Bell moved here from New Zealand when he was maybe 12 or 13, like year six or seven kind of thing. Um, and then Adam played rugby union with him, which is funny. Um, Why is that funny? Because Bell's really good at rugby union and... Yeah, it's really big in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know, music people generally kind of not... Yeah, like so he's, true. he's a really good football player. Um, yeah. Not everyone can be like, wow, is it Vance Joy? That was a professional AFL player was or he? something. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, right. Was it, yeah. It's just, I don't know, it's funny if you, if you know those, yeah. those two. It's an um, anomaly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so then Adam met him through football and then, you know, growing up on the South Coast, we obviously all surfed. So Bal started coming along while, when we go for surfs or whatever. And then, yeah, it's kind of just been all, you know, pretty inseparable since then, I guess. Yeah. Amazing. Um, what was the question? Like, how did you end up founding the business? All oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've kind of all been best mates since then. Um, went to uni, so did Wollongong Uni. Uh, and then I think it kind of came from, um, it was pretty like, culturally barren down here 15 years ago it's feel pretty old saying that but yeah 15 20 years ago it, there's not really been a lot there's been the creative community here for sure mm. as it's a beautiful area people have moved here because they like it and typically i think artists and creative people sniff out the good kind of areas earlier than everybody else um and then it just takes time for that kind of I don't know, community or infrastructure or, you know, just the kind of secondary stuff to those people living here where, all right, now they're comfortable to come out into the community. All right, now they're doing their thing where they might have previously always gone to Sydney or Melbourne or whatever to do their thing. And then they kind of come back here and just hibernate. Now, I think that was our drive anyway. We knew there was such a wealth. We would always have to go to Sydney to do the thing we wanted to do because there's nothing down here. Um... And then, yeah, I don't know, we were 21 and just naive and kind of stupid. So we are like, all right, let's open a cafe. Adam and Bal had just gotten back from South America. So they'd seen the whole like bodega thing over there and like, all right, let's do a cool little cafe thing. And um, I was like running kind of club nighty, um, just shows kind of thing. And they were like do you want to do this with us? We're going to open a cafe. And I was like, all right, yeah, cool. Um, so we just did it. I think you have to have a bit of that naivety that you talk about yeah. in order to start a business. Honestly, like, <laughs> so that, and again, that was just us learning on the fly and mm-hmm. figuring it out on the go. We were terrible at, it was the worst coffee shop. We would often <laughs> not be open. You know, we'd run out of food. Um, <laughs> I think our coffee was all right, but we were just te- we were the worst coffee shop. Um, so you just opened when you wanted to or when you had like, enough stock? I don't know. We'd sleep in and forget. <laughs> or we, we, we then got a, um, our liquor license, mm-hmm. which I think we were the 
second small bar in Wollongong. Um, so again, that was early days for that, and we're 21, so you, it's, you just have unlimited alcohol on tap, um, and that is just dangerous for a 21-year-old. You know, you're in there, you're having fun with your, with your best mates, you're drinking. Again, we're just terrible at business, so everyone would come in. Half the bar was drinking for free at the time, and I don't know. It was it was so much fun, but and so much like I don't know. I feel like that place really kind of incubated a lot of. I'm not saying that we're responsible for it because we're not. That the internet and all this, you know, just influx of people down here has meant that would have happened already. But we were just right place, right time. We're right in the center of it. We became this little like hub where. You know, we'd do art exhibitions, we'd throw, um, it was the tiniest, it was like the size of this room, tiny little 60 cap venue, but we were still getting touring bands coming through and it just created this place where everyone in that kind of niche felt comfortable and that kind of incubated, you know, they would go to that place, get inspired, go away, do their own thing and then it kind of just grew from there and, you know, now Wollongong's just full of all these little creative kind of... Um, collectives and little venues and cool coffee shops and little art galleries and um yeah I don't know that was definitely a tangent I don't know where no it was good I, I was yeah that. that's interesting and then tell me about the very first yours and ours festival you know they they do say that the first event is also where you work out all of your teething issues you know sometimes everything that could go wrong could possibly go wrong what do you remember about that first ever festival um so, like I mentioned before, the festival was kind of born out of yours and ours birthday. That's initially what it was. So I think our third birthday was kind of this like multi-venue thing in in town. That's the one that I had the car accident at. And then I don't think we did anything for fourth. And then we shut down the coffee shop. That turned into Rad Bar, which mm-hmm. again took on a life of, life of its own and just continued to foster that kind of community um and it was maybe our fifth birthday that became like all right we you know adam bell and i sort of got back together and we're like hey let's do something and that's when we did the first kind of outdoor festival greenfield site type thing um and yeah it was an absolute shambles (laughs) we had no idea what we're doing um I think tickets were 30 bucks or something. So all the infrastructure was just so dodgy. Like probably half the people had just jumped the fence to get in. Um, the stage was like this thing that we just, it was so dumb. We didn't, we built it. We basically, we got this stage like fabricated from a, uh, like a steel worker guy. I don't know whatever they're called. Um, he like welded up this stage and there would be photos. Had he it. done stages before or was this a one first Our uh, like him? production guy who was also just as like DIY and like not dodgy, but like it, it wasn't a professional sort of outfit by any means. He kind of like helped us get the design to like tell the metal maker guy to build the stage. And then, yeah, like it looked cool as this arched kind of thing and, um, you know, no one fell off it or it didn't break, so it served the purpose. That's but, a plus. But, yeah, um, it was it was crazy for sure. For sure. <laughs> but are you glad that you 
made all like when you look back on it, you're like, I'm so glad that it was quite ruckus because yeah, I mean, when you said that, that people jump, you learn like totally. And look, that that's again, that's something that will probably never happen again, just because all all the rules and restrictions and regulations and everybody's eyes are on music festivals and blah blah blah. Mm. You know, festival license and the police are all over it and just all of this stuff that's kind of come out of the last three, four years of conversation mm. has just meant that kind of thing will probably never happen again, um, which is really sad because, you know, like that's where if you don't go to school to learn how to do that, then you kind of don't know how hectic it is and if you know how hectic it is and all the things you've kind of technically got to do because that's the proper way to do it you just one you can never afford to do it two it's too scary you would just never do it and i don't know like those those little kind of just sloppy things are where all the like magic is i reckon and where the next generation kind of cuts their teeth and figures it out and gets their identity and you know, now without it, we're just going to see a whole lot of these like cookie cutter kind of same, same events that are super clean and polished, which, you know, that's good. You have to be that if you're at a level, I'm not saying we're that anymore, you know, like that'd give you a heart attack. Everything's planned year round, all your plans are in place, all this health and safety stuff. It's all, mm. it's all sorted. You need to do that when you get to a point, but that you need to also start somewhere, you know, and if you have to do all that right now, you don't have an audience or a database or anything to kind of any brand behind you. How are you going to get, you know, 10,000 people there to be able to justify or just physically pay for those costs of the things that you need to do, you know? So I don't know. It's going to be an interesting time for yeah. sure. Yeah. Like the whole corporatization of the festival and touring market is quite interesting. And I, but I, don't, we, even, I um, don't think it's necessarily corporatization. Mm-hmm. I think it's just like over regulation which you can see why it's there we're trying to make things safer but just this kind of secondary side effect is meaning that all these small ones have no breathing room to actually exist so you know Mm. we're going to miss out on this generation of just kind of new exciting things where people are forging their ideas and they're kind of coming from a place of naivety or just pure creativity of like hey, let's do this thing that I actually care about and I'm passionate about and it's filling a spot that's personal to do with just my circumstance. Whereas, you know, as you go down the line, all these other kind of things come into play where it's like, okay, have we ticked all these boxes? Have we made sure that, um, you know, the council, the cops and all these people are satisfied and, and that kind of just like, you know, narrows it in. Just, just sort of chips away at mm. the like unbridled rawness of a thing. I think there's something to be said for that rat bag mentality when yeah. you're starting something, how hungry it makes you, how, sure. um, how you know, without a lot of red tape, without a lot of you're those hurdles. on the thing, on the like pure idea or like yeah. the th- it's the thing, nothing else really matters. And then with time and, you know, experience, that's when all those other things just chip away at you and you kind of kind of have to mm. you know you have to do things properly at a certain stage yeah um, but speaking of you know those rules and regulations that you now have to follow and you did even back then how did you go getting you know local council support um in those early years? again like it was new for them as well okay. um 
so we were, you know, I, I'm not sure what went on in the 70s or 80s or whatever, but, you know, in terms of, like, greenfield site kind of, like, festival-y type things, they had, they had no infrastructure in place around, okay, DA, like, now there's, you know, just DA processes as a full events team within the council. They've learnt about, oh, okay... That first Yours and Hell's festival was pretty crazy. There was, you know, this, this, this and this happened. So then they've gone, okay, learnings from that. We need to make sure that all these things are accounted for in plans beforehand. You know, for example, okay, you need to have double fencing so that punters don't just jump in and, you know, you can't... The RSA sort of goes out the window then. You don't know what age they are jumping the fence. So what you're saying is that yours and ours help the local council level 100%. up. 100%. Like that's cool. Honestly, we've done that. That's been that's basically our MO with the council. Like it or hate it, that's just is it's, is what it has been. We've just been their crash test dummy to mm. figure out the small bar thing, um, especially around liquor licensing stuff. Because, you know, at first when we opened the, the coffee shop bar thing, we were treated like one of those big booze barns. We were a 60 cap space where you can't get away with antisocial behavior because everyone knows everyone in there. And it's this small little intimate environment where, you know, if you go down the road to one of these big top 40 booze barn clubs where there's 2000 people in there, you can literally go in to one of those places, smash 15 beers, go and throw up in the corner and then go back to the bar and get another beer to wash it down, you know? Who's going to know? No one knows. Mm. You can't get away with that. So when we first started the coffee shop, we would have, um, what are those cops called? The ones with like the full riot gear. We, we would have the cops with dogs, mm. like five of them just walk in, staunch the whole. And it's like, mate, this, this is literally the size of your lounge room and you've just got five, six coppers storming the thing, treating it the same way they would as a... Did you feel targeted by that? For sure. It was the first one. And they were, were because we were a liquid premises, they were approaching that the same, okay, we know that this is filled with antisocial behaviour. We know that there's, you know, Wollongong was a pretty violent town, like nightlife-wise, back in the day anyway. Drinking equals violence equals antisocial. But then it's like, hang on, no, we're doing something different here. This is actually encouraging social drinking and you know behaviors around going out which again were the crash test dummy for that you know we copped like 20 grand in fines for various breaches like there was a a night where we were selling band merch on the front street because we couldn't fit anyone else more in the venue and we got like a three thousand dollar fine for because someone was selling something which on the, on the street which was owned by council which meant it was technically not a part of our business DA you know <sighs> so just so many stupid things like that yeah. we, we also had police come in at like oh, like 1201 or something plain clothes and he was asking us for a drink and we're like no no sorry we're closed and then he kind of kept going and we're like alright look we're just cleaning up if you don't mind we'll, get, we'll give you a drink we're just going to be cleaning up those. It was so a trap. Cleaning. It was a trap and they oh got us. God, <laughs> that's targeted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, at the start it was. And then they eventually kind of, they eventually got it. Um, and I think it was when they realized, okay, we're just good people trying to do a thing which actually isn't hurting anybody. And there was this, 
there was this funny night where Adam Bell and I were all working and we had all the music gear still set up and we would like we were just jamming in the room and it was real late like 3am or something drinking and carrying on and we hadn't locked the front door and the cops like burst in and they were like what's going on in here boys and we're like oh smoking cigarettes inside and stuff like technically you've got an open glass there and blah blah oh blah and then we'd had a few drinks in us so we were just like hang on this is unfair what do you we're not doing anything wrong here and just kind of like wore the heart on the sleeve kind of thing and I think after that they kind of like that, that was that was the head of licensing as well and I think after that they kind of just started to understand and then you know over the next two or three years or whatever Wollongong had like 60 small bars 70 small bars and that has fully changed the culture of Wollongong now there's hardly any violence um you can you know walk through the mall which kind of splits east and west end of Wollongong CBD you couldn't really walk through there before you'd every single time you'd get hit up by someone for you know g'day mate you want to smoke and now it's like it feels so safe so I don't know that's amazing. Again, can't remember what the question was, but that was... No, well, right. I was asking about, um, you know, the council relationship, but, yeah, that's Yeah, we've really... been a crash test dummy for everything throughout our whole career and similarly with the festival thing. We did kind of the first one and they built their plans around that and, you know, it's developed to the point now where they've got a full team in there kind of responsible for it and, yeah. Mm. And I want to chat to you about some COVID-related stuff because, you know, yours and ours was the first major festival in New South Wales to go ahead um huge amazing but what what additional costs did you incur because of the pandemic um i think we worked out that it was about somewhere between a million and 1.2 million on top of what a normal event would have been that's a lot um which basically meant that a sellout, a sellout event, like we broke even, we didn't lose money on it, but um, yeah, we broke even. That's so not the plan though now, the, in, this, plan. in this era of yours well, and ours, the plan isn't know, to break even. The event itself breaks even, but you've got your annual costs and, you know, with everything else being shut down, you know, I'm not, no one's here to complain about COVID, like literally everyone in the world has had a tough time in COVID. Mm. Um, so it's not a, like, you know, whatever, I don't really care about that. I feel proud that we got that thing done and I think look we we just sort of stubbornly at the start I think at the start for one everyone thought it was only going to last three months six months maybe so we're like all right yeah yeah, it's fine we'll we'll get the thing on sale anyway it'll be fine and should be done by the time the event rolls around and then as it got closer we kind of became aware that okay it's probably not going to be over um you know, we'll just figure it out. And then we kind of, we were paying super close attention to just like public sentiment and what it was looking like it to do and, you know, doing your best to predict, oh, okay, if we move it to here, we should be able to get through. And we, we, we moved it from October, which is a normal time to January thinking it'd be fine. And it was looking good. And then there was that Northern suburbs, um, Yep. Breakout, which is also when Blues Fest like got cancelled the day, the day of before. Bumping, like yep. fucking nightmare. Um, so then we moved to April, which, you know, yeah, we luckily were sweet with. Um, 
but yeah, I guess it wasn't just as simple as kind of passively going, oh, I think this time will be fine. We, we were kind of actively involved in like problem solving the issues and kind of just treating it like a, it was weird, sort of treating the government guidelines as like a school syllabus sort of in a way. And, you know, I wish I did that in high school, but <laughs> they kind of, they kind of set the rules out for what is legal and what is not. So you kind of exist within this framework and you kind of realize a lot of the things you can do are in what is in between the lines that they write. So mm. it's kind of around, if they haven't addressed the thing, it means you can do it as opposed to explicitly saying you can do this thing. So that would have been really confusing. It it's like so a hard. riddle you have to solve every yeah. time they announce a new mandate. It was crazy. And especially because, you know, back then a year ago or whatever, the whole process was getting an exemption from the public health order which would mean you could run your event because no event would be able to operate within the public health orders of those times mm. so then you know we engaged epidemiologists we had like high level risk cons like risk management consultants um i can't even remember what it was but basically we had a six or seven hundred page covid document that was the thing that kind of got us through to being able to actually run the event Wow. Did other events tap you for that document? Like did other... It kind of became irrelevant pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, of course. We, we talked to the AFA and we were like, look, we're happy to share that. The if, Australian Festivals Association? Yeah, it, I don't right? know if we... We probably shared stuff to people who would ask, but that was kind of the thing. We are like, if they ask for it, we're happy to like talk it through or whatever. But I don't think it even ended up happening because no one was really proactively putting on events at that time and... Then when they did it, it became pretty irrelevant quite quickly. Um, so, yeah, that 700-page document we kind of came up with, which, you know, there's like 40 different site maps and all these different kind of just harebrained things of how you can minimise COVID or whatever. Wow. <laughs> which, you know, some of the... Anyway, so, yeah, we have this document, six, 700 pages, and then obviously that, that itself cost the money all the like so we also had lobbyists involved who would go and pressure the government with this document of like hey we've actually done the work we've got these epidemiologists these um risk consultants super high level you know like guys who have done um terrorist kind of management plans wow. for stadiums in dubai like so not music industry lobbyists no, no, no. as like, well that's cool they were, no no so the the lobbyists that we got um were he was basic he, his you know past was um he was like a mil they were like a military kind of guys so they had good relationships with the liberal party um i think he won like some strain of the year award or like just kind of like one of those soldiers who's kind of done you know pretty special stuff and now he was respected by all those people and then I don't know how we got in touch with him, but... Um, that, to me, speaks volumes around a music industry issue that we have around lobbying. You that know, was the thing, and I think, you know, the the whole um, music festival licence thing is probably where we realised, okay, we're not represented as a whole here, and the AFA kind of came about, and then the Don't Kill Live Music sort of stuff, that was around the time where I think it started to kind of galvanise a bit more, Um and then what's the new one But called? it's still so fragmented. Um, 
the ILMC. No. Wait, do you ILM, mean ILMBC. the one that's, yeah, that's yeah. Um, team the sports and music industries oh, together? Oh, no, no, no. Is that There's one? that one. I think that's Leaf, is it? Yeah, Leaf. And then there's the ALMBC an as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, out of out of that kind of hectic trauma thing, I guess there's been good growth and a realisation we need to be represented because that was also the other place we learnt about a lot of the COVID stuff. We learnt, paid a lot of attention to how sports were doing it. Um so UFC did really well and so did rugby league. And I guess the difference is with them is they had ability to um, trial and error kind of thing. So they would have a new measure and they'll go, okay, well, they also had the benefit of television rights. So they can still have money whilst just making sure that the show happens, you know. But then as it progressed, okay, that we started introducing 25% crowds, 50% crowds with these, with these measures and they could lobby effectively because rugby league itself is an entity that it has all the teams, has all the players, has all the money and whatever. So they could lobby effectively to the government as a whole. Any sports code can do that. Music industry, we're made up of all these individual you know pretty pig-headed egotistical like <laughs> maniacs really <laughs> and so they're all just thinking about their agendas and kind of trying to do what's best for their event which yep. is natural because that's what you have to do to survive um and it's just the way it's always been you know like okay i've got this idea for a thing cool i'll go and do it you don't run it by everybody else and see if this is okay which is a great, um, which is a positive in some ways, but when it comes it to a happens. pandemic or yeah. getting money from the government, we are so fragmented. We're so fragmented and there's just, there's no unity and there's so many different like ideas and agendas and everyone's so used to people listening to them and getting their own way that it's, I think it's been very hard to unify, but I also think we've come a long way and, you know, AFA especially, I think it's good. They're starting to be able to effectively lobby government and at least, you know, have us in the conversation, you know. It's, it is great, but I also think, well, that's just the festival side of the music industry. What about all sure. of the other sectors yeah, in our industry? 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, and the the industry was benefited, benefited a little bit from the government funding, RISE funding is what I'm thinking of, and obviously we would have loved to have, have had some more and been more supported in the same way yep. that the music industry supported other industries in crisis. Yep. Um, you yourself has, have voiced some frustration with the RISE fund. I th um, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it was around not um, supporting existing events was one of the things that you tapped yeah. as an issue and but you know um the other and the other issue that i see is that this rise funding can go to an event that doesn't go ahead and they still get the funding that is part of my understanding of the mm. rise funding at the moment what's your take on the rise funding i know that yours and ours did benefit from yeah. from it as well but there's holes in it so oh there is for sure holes and look Thank you for the money, government, mm. you know. From no, the top, no need to mention that. Yep. No one's biting the hand that feeds here, but, um, yeah, the initial process was problematic, I think. Uh, so, as we've already talked about, we were the only event to go ahead in whatever, 18 months, 12 months, however long it was. I would have thought that that placed us as prime candidate 
to get funding to help with all those extra, you know, $1.2 million in costs of extra staff, you know, all the, we had to build essentially four festival sites to split our crowd up into smaller increments and no staff could cross over. So we had, it was four festival sites in one, basically. Um, so what am I talking about? Uh, yeah, that you use the holes that you see within Rise Funding. Right, right, right. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so we've obviously gone and done this thing. It's literally been built with the purpose of this is to exist within COVID. Okay, what's that fund for? It's to help support festivals and events get through COVID and happen during COVID. That was initially what it was meant for. So we applied when we when we did the application. Our event was meant to be in January. So we did the application. When's your event? January. Okay, cool. It gets to the time when the, you know, the winners of the great government prize that were all, you know, being drawn. <laughs> and that might have been October, I think, or November. And by that time, we'd realised, okay, COVID's popped off again. We need, maybe it was December. We need to most probably move this date now because I don't think we're going to be out of you know, the current lockdown or whatever by this time. So we'd moved it to April, announced it all. We got rejected from that initial rise funding because the, we had a different date of event that was on our initial application. And it's like... Oh. But the, the change of the date was because of the government. Yeah. So we, were, we didn't get funding on a technicality, essentially, I suppose. Um, <sighs> We have since received funding for this year's event. So, you know, I guess the hope is that this event, we don't need to do as much COVID and the money that we got helps, you know, with the annual costs of whatever and making sure that one's safe as well as hopefully chipping away to a few of those costs from the last one as well. Mm. Um, so look, yeah, it's been super helpful having that for sure. Um, I think the other initial problem with it, and I, if, again, we haven't, we've got our funding, so I haven't really paid a whole lot of attention to what, how, how it's kind of going now. Um, but initially it did feel like they were really trying to encourage new events. And all that meant is all these existing festival companies or whatever who, you know, they should just be funded. Give Splendor in the Grass the money. Give Groove in the Moo the money. Give Falls the money. Give... You know they're good for it. You know give they're these, profitable. Give these events yeah. that have been a mainstay mm. the money. Like, mm. that's the industry. That is literally the industry. Don't force us to come up with some bullshit idea where it's like, oh, hey, uh, now we're doing, um, you know, oh, what's a name, Gary? Just think of a name, whatever, and we'll just throw a few bands in a thing to try and get this money. And that's what happened. Those events have no culture behind them, no, like, history. So, you know... I'd love to see the numbers on how many of those, one, went ahead, two, how many of those were actually successful, and three, how many of those things are going to stay? Probably none. Just give it to the, just give it to probably new events who are trying to get selling up and give it a real go. You know, give them the money so that these little creative things with a pure idea can get off the ground and get past all that red tape because they have some money to do it now. Or give it to the things that have contributed to the industry and contributed to the culture of music festivals 
for a long period of time blues festival like all these things you know and I think that's changed and you know now they've all gotten that money um it's not perfect but I don't know yeah it will be really interesting post pandemic how many of those events that were essentially invented for the rise funding continue I don't like how many of them have actually gotten up and gone ahead yeah yeah and okay i want to talk about the lineup because you know you're known as being a mega music fan you program your own events you um program artists that you personally love as well as you think that other people will love but you're also a business owner and you need to make a profit so how do you program a successful great lineup um Again, I think that's probably a lot of learning. Um, We've done events which are literally just pure, like this is what I like, and they tend to struggle. Are you thinking which ones? Oh, like the Farm and the Owl festivals or just like stuff from, you know, a lot earlier on. There's kind of like your passion project-y kind of things. Um, So I think it's... I don't know, balance has probably been a thing that is like a constant reoccurring like theme in my life of like I need, I always need to find balance because I'll go super hard on one thing or super hard on another thing and then other things will kind of like suffer and I guess that's a good analogy for lineups as well. You kind of do need to find that balance and it, I don't necessarily think it's a balance of um, stuff you like or don't like because you know it's all music and it all has merit it becomes a um thing i think a good lineup is well-rounded i think and that's just finding balance between genre you know what you're trying to do what's the nature of the festival if you're doing a metal festival Mm -hmm. then you're going to program more metal bands but Mm -hmm. there's still balance within that you know there's the different subgenres of metal or whatever um so similarly with our festival we're pretty broad demographically we've tried to represent a whole community and you know show the best of Wollongong whilst also attracting stuff to Wollongong Mm -hmm. as well you know um so yeah I think I think balance is the key. Just just being able to get those older acts who, you know, might be a mainstay or get the new kind of upcoming ones that maybe not everybody knows about but you think are really good. You know, there needs to be a bit of soul in there of stuff like, hey, this is still me, I do actually like music and here are ones that you probably aren't going to know yet um, but I think they're really good and, you know, let's put them on the lineup. Not everything's there to sell tickets or make money or whatever but I think the the whole like when you when you program like that and you are putting a bit of soul into it I think that comes across as well and it kind of brings everything up because people want to go to a festival to find a new band they like or be surprised or you know have a bit of a you know have a bit of a surprise element in there and you know unpredictable kind of kind of thing so yeah, I think balance is the thing. Mm, yeah, and I know that, I mean, my understanding, sorry, prove me if I say if I'm incorrect, but yours and ours doesn't book to quotas. So when it comes to making sure your lineup is diverse in many different ways, that's just something that happens as you're booking. It's not like, oh, we need X amount of and so on. I remember there was a year 
where all the diversity conversation really got pushed to the front and center. Yeah. And that was when, you know, all these events were getting called out for, you've only got one woman on the lineup and there's, you know, only 5% of this, you can do better, um, which is a valid conversation. And that year that that all kicked off, we'd announced the lineup right in the middle of it. And honestly, not even, like we just hadn't paid any attention to that. It just naturally happened. And we were like pretty much 50-50, female to male. And... Which is proof of how easy it is. Yeah, like, yeah, I guess, I don't know. A festival's job is to, you know, one, put the soul, heart and soul of the people who are throwing into it, throwing it, who are throwing it into the event. But also you're kind of a mirror for what's going on and what's popular, right? So music festivals cop a lot of the brunt of the, or the blame, I guess, of what I think is a pretty systematic institutionalized inequality. You know, if there is no... Uh, role models for young girls in primary school or whatever to want to go and learn an instrument to get into high school and form a band and then get to the point where they're playing shows maybe getting on the radio then turning into one of those role models themselves that then gets booked on a festival if all those other things aren't in play you know there's there's no radio presenters um, playing the music, then how can you expect the public to want to go and see all these female acts, right? And that's like you just touched on before, it is a business and if you want to keep doing it, you need to give people also what they want. Um, And I don't know if it's luck or whatever, but that year our lineup was 50-50. so it's definitely doable. There's definitely an inequality there of, you know, probably more bigger male acts in the country right now, for sure. I think, I don't know, you would probably, you would probably know that better than me, but I think Hottest 100, that's a pretty good example as well. It's probably more male acts represented in that. And I don't think that's a function of festivals not programming equally. I think it's a, function of everybody systematically not doing that throughout the last 50 years or whatever you know Mm. but now it's like this correctional period and there's a lot more girls you know they do have role models and there's so many new like bands coming through and you know they will all in time grow and get to the point where they're big famous acts and hopefully there will be parity there um Mm. that year we did have parody. That's great. And I guess while we don't program to, we didn't, we never initially intended to program to a quota that year. Definitely. It was just like, all right, that's a lesson for sure. That's the thing that's happening. And we probably should be conscious of that. So while it wasn't a quota at that time, I think, I feel like that's kind of a nice thing. We didn't have to think about it lineup was that anyway but now it's like okay let's just make sure we can kind of hold that standard throughout the thing you know 
Yeah, like like it wasn't a conscious thing then, but then after all of those valid discussions came to light, you yeah. decided, well, let's just do what we normally let's do, just make sure. but let's just do a yeah, little one last your, one last check. Exactly. Yeah, brush your teeth, really dot cool. your dot your eyes. Yeah, nice. Um, Where do you see the festival in five years' time? Um, oh, look, this is often. So our, yeah, our company is obviously the three of us, Adam, Bell and I, mm. and, you know, we spend so much time just, which we're trying to spend less time in kind of existential, what are we doing with our lives? What's this going to be? Where do we want to, where do we want to, how do we want to be living? Um, but I think we've kind of settled on, we've done so many things and, you know, a good analogy again is back in the day, at the cafe, when we had, when it used to be a cafe, we would change the menu every like two or three weeks. And we never gave anybody a chance to like fall in love with those mm. individual menu items and start coming there because they knew we had that. It would be different every time. So then they just, we had no consistency and we couldn't like build on a good thing. So I think what we've all realized is like, let's just cut out a lot of the noise. And I think we've done a lot of that experimenting and what works, what doesn't work. So I think it's just about putting all that together and just growing the festival to being one of those, like we'd love it to be an internationally recognised, like one of the best festivals in the country, you know, mm. that's, that's the goal. I know that you studied psychology at university and I wonder if that has helped you in other areas of business, you know, navigating different personalities, if there's ever a crisis, you know, you strike me as someone who would be if there was a crisis i would probably want you on my team you're quite oh, calm good. and level-headed yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah i think it's definitely been helpful for sure uh i didn't finish my degree i, I literally <laughs> it was so dumb i had i had my last session exams to do and then you were so close i was so close and then i don't know just a bunch of stuff kind of happened and then I'd started throwing like these party things and I was like, this is what I want to do. Well, they're um, very different careers. So that makes sense. Different careers, And I was just like, this is what I want to do. This is more fun. And I just lent into that. And yeah, it's been downhill ever since. But I think there's definitely been a lot of, and I don't know if it's, it's hard to know to put down, okay, what's just my personality or whatever, or what is it, this thing that I've learned? I think, I value it anyway. And I think that's maybe the thing that's come out of it. Like I value, I don't know, the way people think or feel about a thing a lot. So I think about it a lot and maybe that's where the benefits come. Um, And I'm sure there's been lots of like skills and tricks and things that kind of subconsciously have crept in and just means you can handle conflict well or or whatever. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Cool. So for those listening and if the video actually goes ahead, we, this is a bit different. I've been very silent through this whole podcast. I've been very away from the microphone because we. this is the first time we've done Fear at the Top away from the studio and we had some technical difficulties. So Poppy and I are sharing one mic. Yay. So that's meant I've been very quiet and we're segmenting it sort of like the, the questions back and forth. Um, I'd love to hear about like your kind of what the team that runs the whole company is like what's that org chart look like and then what is your management style in terms of dealing with that team god i don't know um how many staff do you have full-time across all the things yeah including like owners or just staff 
somewhere between probably 15 and 20. Okay. Yeah. And so how are you, do they all, how many of them report to you directly? Maybe like six or seven. And how would you describe your management style to those seven people? Uh, it depends how busy I am, I think. Um, I would love to give everybody... I don't know what my management style is. I don't know. So you've got the... Um, actually, you know what? We use a, I usually use a Steve Jobs sort of analogy, but I'm going to use a music management analogy. You've got someone like... And forget all of the drama that's happened, but a management style like Dennis Hanlon, who literally controlled every little thing and wanted mm. to be their fingerprints on every little thing, and all the staff basically um, were there to fulfill Dennis's vision. And then you've got the other complete opposite end of that spectrum. And I would say, like Steve Jobs, like in the tech world, probably had that same sort of mm. you know personality type. But then you've got the other side of the spectrum where the manager is almost like an enabler and lets the people go autonomously yeah. and they you kind of staff live or die on their results if they're great for sure they're promoted and raised <laughs> yeah they give yeah. raises if they're not good they're let go but yes. they they kind of they're there on their own and i would say george ash at universal has probably okay. more that style so and then there's obviously a big big sort of like middle ground as well for so sure. but i would say they're kind of the two extremes i think at the start and if you know, like there's a period of training, right? And I think, I think it's very easy. While while music industry is not rocket science, it's all about nuance and relationship. I reckon it's very easy to go. Oh, you know, you book a band. That's super easy. You just ring the guy, ask him how much, and then you pay him, and the job's done. Um, you could say that about every single role in the music industry. Um, but it's super nuanced, I reckon, and just the way that you speak to people and the way that you communicate and the relationships that you have is that's where you live or die, I reckon. So I think I, I, I try to spend a lot of time at the start and that this probably goes on throughout, you know, if they'll need to touch up here or there, if I see something that's standing out that, hey, I don't think that's working, it's not necessarily about, um, you know, fulfill my vision. It's more about how, how are you actually operating? Like, are you, what, what's the culture of this place? And that's probably the thing that I'm pretty, try to be pretty firm on. Like, let's get the culture good. And how do you define your culture? The training, the training will come and you'll just learn that through experience. Mm. And I, once they're at a point, I like to be pretty hands off. Um, but yeah, the culture is super important. I think, oh, what's the culture? I, I think like just that whole, like, you know, be humble, be good at your job. Um, focus on the, like, it's the thing that's important. It's not you, it's not you, you know, it's not your egotistical view of, you know, the thing that I hate is if something wrong will happen and it might have been because someone else did it or, or whatever. Oh, that, that wasn't me. It's like, I don't care if it wasn't you. <laughs> the thing is broken and we're supposed to all be collectively working towards a thing, which we've had to have because we're from Wollongong and there was nothing here before. So we had to just build everything collectively, you know. So I'd say that that... Um, 
that whole teamwork kind of selflessness thing is is pretty important um and then yeah i'd say just being diligent and proactive and actually caring about your job you know that's probably the other thing if just trying to foster that like okay hey we're here because we want to be here it's a lifestyle choice as well as a career so you know if you're purely driven by this or that and it doesn't necessarily align i don't know maybe go get a job at a bank or whatever how Um, do you go exiting staff that don't align with your culture or underperforming how do we fire people luckily luckily we haven't really had to fire anyone there's definitely been conversations around you know people wanting certain things and then there's just there's literally a sit down where they might say i want this 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 and this you're like well that's not going to work unfortunately and then it'll generally be a decision that they make so you've never had that situation where the, the staff members just hung around and you've gone, okay. We, so that most, must mean your hiring process Most people is, stay here. Yeah. We don't have a very high turnover. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So that must mean your... So what's your hiring process like then? If you've got that much success over this long period of time, your hiring mm-hmm. process must be really great. I don't know. It's... Initially, it was probably, like like when we first started, it was a pretty small community down here. So it was probably just like a function of, are you here? Are you keen? All right, cool. That's enough. (laughs) Um, Now it's probably a bit more, um, you know, we've learned and, and whatever. So it's probably just, I don't even know, just sort of thinking about who you think will fit, like who will fit with the culture, who actually likes and cares about music, who kind of knows our story as well. That's kind of been important, I've found. Um, you know, it can be sort of weird if there's been like a, like you say, if there's someone who's come from, say, Sony or whatever, I don't know, maybe that'll be a weird fit because they kind of have these other, I don't know, agendas or focuses or things that are important just been taught a different way to work just been taught a different way yeah and maybe that's weird maybe it wouldn't be I don't know um yeah I think just I don't know being smart obviously is important um so it's generally just a chat and then there'll be like a trial kind of period probation whatever you want to call it and all the like values and whatever are outlined at the start of like hey this is what we value this is what we do um you know we'd love you all to grow like we're still growing as well so we can kind of like they can all kind of be part of the the story um i want to actually ask you about that growth so i've been listening to you and poppy talk you've gone from a coffee shop that is never open and never has food to one of the you know a a mega music festival here Mm -hmm. in wollongong um you're booking almost every venue in the city um you run a record label with some very successful artists that is a pretty ridiculous growth. And so mm. I'm curious about how you funded that growth. Has it come from cash flows of the business? Have you raised equity, like raised money through equity? Have you raised debt? How have you, how have you funded the growth? This is going to be a bit of a downer. <laughs> um, my dad died when I was like 21, I think, 2021. 20, and I didn't get heaps of money. I got a little bit of money, like 100 grand-ish. 
and then put that into the coffee shop. Um, and then that's what started, that's what funded the coffee shop, I guess. And we've kind of just, it's just sort of grown from there. We didn't necessarily end up with more money after the coffee shop was done, probably ended up with slightly less. Um, but, but still I, but had I, some money to go and do it, stuff. That doesn't explain it. hundred grand is not a lot of money for what you've built. So how did you go from coffee shop to massive festival? Like where did that money come from? Because you're talking millions of dollars along yeah, the way yeah. of investing. Just so, incrementally, I suppose. Like, um, I don't know. How do normal people do it? I don't know. It, 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 so, so you've done it from cash flows, it sounds like. Just as yeah. things have grown, you've just reinvested along yeah. the way. Have you ever... Um, got ahead of your skis and thought oh shit we're, we're in trouble here uh, we <laughs> the last festival was probably literally like hey if this thing doesn't go off we're fucked <laughs> the one that broke even yeah yeah okay yeah so that was that was stressful and there was a moment it wasn't even that like I think look COVID is just ground people down so low that I think you're willing to just accept anything at that point. And I think we all look, we're confident in our plans. We're confident in our ability to execute it or whatever, but ultimately there are certain things that are totally out of your control. And you know, that's just act of God or, you know, despite people trying to uh, say that COVID is no longer uh, legally a, act of God and you can't insure against it. Uh, <laughs> that's what it is, you know? And we had to resign at a certain point to like, Hey, we're, we're doing this. We're pushing ahead. I'll go into actually why I got to that. Mm. So with the public health order thing and the inability to get an exemption, you couldn't get an exemption from a public health order until that health order was in place. So public health orders were changing kind of every three months type thing. And our festival period when we're doing all these plans was in a different public health order to the public health order we're in whilst trying to um, get the exemption, get the plans through, you know. Mm. This is what we'll do for COVID. So can you please let us do it within the curriculum or public health order? So you're saying you were in an active... Um, public health order which meant which was not going to be the health order at the time the yes. festival was going to run so they couldn't give you an exemption to a public health order that wasn't in effect yet yeah so they made it super difficult timeline wise right so at a certain point we get to like four or five weeks out and then the, the public health order kicked in I think maybe three or four weeks out um <laughs> it was so crazy so we essentially had to make that call at about five weeks out of like, hey, are we going to give this a punt? And it started feeling sort of better. Okay, I think we can get through it. Looks like it's easing a little bit. We're not in winter yet. Um, so will we give it a punt? And at that point, we're like, okay, yes, we feel confident, but ultimately we don't have control over it. So if this punt goes wrong, we're done. And we'd all come to terms with like, all right, this might be it. And it was a full-on gamble because the, the, other, the other gamble was still pretty bad. So it's like, okay, we're going to go for like worst case or like still pretty bad mm. with no chance of like anything good happening, you know? So we, made, we took the punt and then um, we didn't get a formal 
approval to go ahead with like a signed we had letters of like you should be okay from the premier's cabinet you should be okay if nothing kind of changes and we're like okay that's when we went let's just take the punt but we didn't get a signed approval to run the event from local and state level and all the stakeholders until like week of the event <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so <laughs> did you so you said you were resigned to that were you emotion like i think intellectually you might have resigned to that how were you emotionally do were you sleeping or was it no, no, you no. were i can't I, you. I don't know yeah <laughs> anyone who saw me that festival weekend like that was the hardest weekend of my life like just all the stuff that happened on site as well to manage all those stakeholders and the COVID promises you kind of make and then balancing that against like an overall actual risk safety thing of knowing how people move and all this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I wasn't sleeping. I, the, the three kind of days leading up to the event, I'd like, my routine was I'd wake up, I'd probably get like three hours sleep or something, wake up, throw up and then just get into my day. <laughs> Crazy. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sure Wollongong and the whole music industry is actually so grateful that you took that part. Yeah. Like, we're all better off for it. So it's very inspiring that you've done it. I've got one last question. You run three, three facets of your business. You program music venues all around Wollongong. You program music festivals as well. You run a music festival and you're a promoter for a music festival. And you have a record label. What If I was looking at the revenue split between all of those, what percentage... Is the, is the programming, what percentage of your revenue comes from the label, what percentage of your revenue comes from the festival? Festival would be the most, for sure. Label would be the least. Yeah. By so, pretty significant amounts. Yeah. yeah. So why do you do the label? Because it's fun and I care about it. And the label, when it started, it came from a similar place, really. There, There's so many good bands here who were just kind of doing that local circuit and then they'd give up after a year or whatever because it wouldn't go anywhere. So we're just like, all right, there's heaps of good bands here. Let's just try to get them out and get it. Because there was also no, going back to the whole um, role model type thing, there was sort of no bands coming out of Wollongong since, what, Tumbleweed or whatever, which is like 90s. And that whole like rock era of Wollongong, and then it was just dead for so long. There was no like role models. There was no path to follow. You know, okay, so what do you do? You got to get a publicist. Okay, you so see your book shows around locally. You kind of get a bit of a vibe. You get a following, and then we, okay, then you go out of the city and you you know you try and do some shows in Sydney or team up with a couple of other bands who are you know you like and you're sort of friends with and you tour with them or you know whatever. Mm. There was no like path or model or whatever for them to follow and look up to and just learn okay what have they done oh they signed to a label how do you sign to a label okay figure it out like but they didn't know the steps so yeah we started a label and um that was with hockey dad and it just hit straight away which was pretty lucky um and yeah, now that's, you know, there's so many bands coming out of Wollongong, it's crazy. Mm. And I think that is fully down to the whole like pathway role model thing. So it sounds like there's a uh, much bigger purpose for the label, um, certainly in your heart. Yeah. Um, 
What about the so the programming? But it's fun. The relationships are fun. You know, like mm. we like all the people on the label. You know, hang out with them, have a good conversation, and it's it's nice. <laughs> yeah, and and the programming part of the business to me, um, what do you see is the uh, my 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 guess from the outside is that function of the business does two things. It is. I assume it's good for your cash flow of your business and will help fund the fund the uh, and sort of de-risk the the festival. Yep. But then also, do you then use it as a way to almost A and R the festival if 100%. there's talent yeah. just going off that you didn't expect? Yeah. You see it on the spreadsheet 100%. when it comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that show sold out. Cool. They're going to be you know for sure. It just it keep. Uh, I remember someone said to me, can't remember who, but their analogy like booking is like boxing. And I think booking the venues is the like sparring and kind of keeping fit and you're kind of knowing who's coming through and you're seeing the like patterns or whatever of, you know, not just band to band as well, like genre to genre, you're kind of like, all right, that thing's starting to, you know, happen. Like the whole TikTok thing, you know, mm. like they haven't, that has fully blown up, but none of those acts have had a chance to play live yet, mm. which is you know and then you don't know that. that's a new thing you don't know then how that converts to um, ticket sales at a festival if you book them as well so, no, you, so you just book it you'd be the first one to get in and do it <laughs> and then that's proof of concept and then they can go alright we're worth this yeah or whatever so if I'm a manager then and I want to get on your radar it sounds to me like the smartest thing to do is book some shows book in Wollongong and show 100%. you I can sell things out 100% yeah because there's that, so much talk oh we're going to do this and we're killing it blah 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 alright Prove it. Book a room. Prove it then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ben, um, you are an incredible inspiration to not only people in Wollongong, uh, both professionally and personally, but the whole country. The music industry is very <laughs> grateful to, that you have been taking these bets, have been risking it all, have been working so hard. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story today. All right. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Oh, thank you for hosting you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. <laughs> yeah, you hosted us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>